Welcome to Sojourner Truth. Thank you for staying with us. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. Today, historian and author Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz discusses with us the context of the obsession with guns and racialized policing in, in the United States its roots in the wars against indigenous nations, enslaved patrols, as well as the power of the NRA and inability of Congress to act. This following the latest spate of mass shootings in the United States, the latest taking place in Uvalde, Texas, where 19 children and two teachers were killed and another recent mass shooting, a white supremacist domestic terrorist attack at a supermarket in Buffalo, New York, that left 10 black people dead. Despite all of this, including specifically the Texas shooting, the NRA moved full speed ahead with its May 2022 convention in that same state. And controversy continues over the lack of focus on Black immigrants, this time in the lead up to the race for mayor in Los Angeles, a city where one in five Black people are immigrants or immigrant descended. Our guest is Nana Jumphy, Executive Director of Black Alliance for Just Immigration, and for our weekly Earth Watch, a victory against logging. Matt Simmons, Staff Attorney with the Environmental Protection Information Center, fills us in. We live in a global world. We're all interrelated. So on Sojourner Truth, we work to bring directly to you news and views on local, national, and international policies and stories that affect us all. And we draw out how those of us most impacted women, communities of color, and other communities are responding. We also discuss the interrelationship between art and politics. Now for our news headlines. For Pacifica Radio, I'm Christina Onestead. Funeral services for three victims of the mass shooting in Uvalde, Texas, are scheduled today. A teacher, Irma Garcia, who tried to protect children as a lone 18-year-old high school dropout massacred 19 youth, will be laid to rest alongside her husband, Jose Antonio Garcia, who died of a heart attack shortly after his wife's murder. They leave behind four children. The family has launched a GoFundMe campaign that's raised more than $2.7 million for their surviving children. Funeral services will also be held for 10-year-old Jose Flores Jr. Eleven funerals are planned this week. Meanwhile, KWTX-TV released video recording Monday of a child on a 911 dispatch saying they had been shot by the gunman at the Robb Elementary School last week. Are you injured? ABC released dispatched calls stating police were aware of the calls. They previously said they weren't. A 
Officials say a teacher was able to close a door before the gunman entered one of the classrooms, but it failed to lock. The investigation into the shooting has hit a roadblock as the Uvalde School District's chief of police, Pete Arredondo, has refused to comply with the Justice Department looking into the botched police response that's come under heavy scrutiny in the wake of the attack. He was sworn in as a city council member of Uvalde Tuesday with no ceremony. President Biden Tuesday promised he would meet with lawmakers on guns. He spoke as he met with New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern. I've been to more mass shooting aftermaths than I think any president of American history, unfortunately. And it's, uh, it's just so much of it is, much of it is preventable and the devastation is is amazing. Arden won passage of gun control measures after a white supremacist killed 51 Muslim worshipers at two Christchurch mosques in 2019 in her nation. Less than a month later, all but one of the country's 120 lawmakers voted in favor of banning military-style semi-automatic weapons. But in the U.S., no one's expressing any optimism about reinstating a federal ban on sales of semi-automatic assault weapons. The White House has acknowledged that winning new gun legislation will be an uphill climb in an evenly divided Congress. Former Trump advisor Peter Navarro has been subpoenaed to appear before a grand jury this week as part of the Justice Department's probe into the deadly Capitol insurrection. Navarro said Tuesday he was served by the FBI at his Washington, D.C. house last week. The subpoena is the first known instance of prosecutors seeking testimony from someone who worked in President Donald Trump's White House as they investigate the worst attack on the Capitol in two centuries. The Navarro subpoena could signal the Justice Department is widening its probe to examine and the activities and records of people who work directly for the Republican president. The Biden administration is sending Ukraine a small number of high-tech, medium-range rocket systems. Ukrainian leaders have been begging for the critical weapons as they struggle to stall Russian progress in the Donbass region. The rocket system are part of a new $700 million tranche of security assistance from the U.S. It's the 11th package approved so far and will be the first to tap the $40 billion in security and economic assistance recently approved by Congress. Meanwhile, Ukraine's prosecutor General Erna Venediktova says they will begin prosecutions of 80 Russians suspected of war crimes. We have more than 600 suspects. Actually, it is high level of top milita- militaries, politicians and propaganda agents of Russian Federation. Uh, when we speak about war crimes in Ukraine, you know we have near 80 suspects, people whom we identify as a war criminals and started to prosecute them. Her statements come as two Russian soldiers were convicted of shelling civilian villages in Ukraine and sentenced to 11 and a half years in prison. European Commission President Ursula von der Leyen says they have a plan to get grain exports moving again that Russia has blocked at the Black Sea ports in Ukraine. It's hitting African nations hard like Somalia, which gets 90 percent of its grain from Ukraine. 20 million tons of wheat are stuck in Ukraine and they have to get out. And therefore we have created and we're working hard on the solidarity lines, lanes that will enable it to bring out parts of this wheat through a land route and trains 
towards our parts. But Russia's foreign minister, Sergei Lavrov, has deflected blame and pointed the finger to Ukraine and sea mines, he says, soldiers have placed in the Black Sea port. His comments were translated by Al Jazeera. Ukrainian officials must clear mines from Ukrainian territorial waters. If the demining problem, which we have been drawing the attention of Western colleagues for several weeks, is resolved, the Russian Navy will ensure that these ships pass into the Mediterranean and then to their destinations. Russia's Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov. A coalition of 200 organizations is calling for an alternative to the Ninth Summit of the Americas, which the U.S. is hosting for the first time this year next week. The event brings together leaders from the Americas and is set to take place in Los Angeles. But this year, a growing number of leaders, including Mexico's president, are threatening not to attend if the Biden administration follows through with its plan to exclude Cuba, Venezuela, and Nicaragua. Organizers of the Alternative People's Summit for Democracy say the summit will raise issues that have been excluded from the official summit with a focus on immigrants and women. I'm Christina Onestead reporting for Pacifica Radio. And this is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Uh, we're going to kick off our show today by welcoming back Nana Jumphy, who is the executive director of Baji, or known as the Black Alliance for Just Immigration. And apparently, um, immigration has become somewhat of a bit of a controversial hot button issue in the election for mayor for our listeners across the country. Um, Angelinos will be electing a new mayor as Eric Garcetti has stepped down. He's termed out. And uh, there are several um, who are in the race uh, for mayor, but the Black Alliance for Just Immigration and other Black uh, immigrants uh, organizations have gotten involved and some controversy has broken out. And here to tell us all about that and why, why Los Angeles, uh, the Los Angeles mayor and Los Angeles generally is important uh, for Black immigration and Black immigrants, I'd like to welcome back Nana Jumphy. Nana, welcome. Greetings. Thank you. Always glad to be here. Thank you so much. Right. And uh, I think a lot of our listeners know, of course, about uh, Nana Jumphy and her work, uh, not only with uh, Baji, but basically as a you know, the people's attorney, as you are known, uh, Baji, and winning an award uh, from the UCLA Law School, and also sometimes uh, sitting in for me on this show, uh, Sojourner Truth, and also has been on Pacifica uh, stations, including KPFK. So, Nana, what's going on? Um, why did Baji feel it was important to hold a forum? for the candidates running for mayor, and uh, what is the controversy around that? No, it was, first of all, it was a wonderful forum. Um, We had it last night in Little Ethiopia um, at the Masab restaurant there, um, which was kind enough to open up some of its space to allow us to be able to bring folks in. We thought it was really important and for us to make sure that Black migrants were engaging in this mayoral campaign. Um, as you know, California is the state with the most immigrants in the country. Los Angeles is the second largest 
city in the country. And certainly we are a city of immigrants, including black migrants who often are invisibilized. I mean, still now in 2022, even after Del Rio and and all things else that have been happening with black folks, particularly at the border, um, as well as in detention and deportation, when you say immigrants, people still don't think of black migrants. And so what we noticed is that in the platforms and the conversations that the mayoral candidates were having, that they were speaking of immigrant issues really as they pertain to uh, brown migrants, as they pertain to Asian migrants, Pacific Islander migrants, but nothing that spoke specifically to black migrants. In fact, people were going and speaking to other migrants but uh, of other races, but we're not speaking to black migrants. And so we were glad to connect up with our folks with the International Society of Black Latinos, the Little Ethiopia Cultural and Resource Center, the African uh, Academy, African Diplomatic Academy, um, BLMP, the Black LGBTQ Migrant Project, and others to make sure that we um, pulled together folks from Africa, from the con- from the Caribbean, from Europe, uh, from Central America, from South America, literally the ambassador at large of the Garifuna Nation and the president of the Garifuna Nation were there to be able to ask these candidates questions. And it was somewhat controversial. One of the candidates um, was, we've given him four different dates and five different times. He's an immigrant uh, candidate, allegedly, but he hasn't said yes yet. Uh, but the other two candidates, Gina Viola and Karen Bass, did come. And it was a very, very interesting conversation, Margaret. Um, you know, I hope you get a chance to listen to it. It's on our Baji's Facebook page. Very interesting. Yeah, definitely looking forward to uh, listening to that. Um, And, you know, I'm an example of that, uh, Nana, as uh, many of our listeners know, I'm an immigrant myself from uh, Barbados, a naturalized uh, U.S. citizen. And you're right, when a lot of people look at me, they don't think Black immigrant. I mean, even when I say it, Nana. People kind of like you. Well, you know, it's it's uh, so you you remain invisible, uh, nevertheless. Um, so, as I said in the intro, one in five uh, black people uh, black people in Los Angeles are immigrants or are descendants of immigrants. Uh, before we get a bit more into the controversy, um, and uh, you know, name some names here. Um, tell us where overwhelmingly do black immigrants hail from those who are in Los Angeles? By the way, we have listeners across the country. So we know that there are black immigrants across the United States, you know, particularly in places like, you know, New York City, Washington, D.C., Massachusetts, etc. But in this instance, since we're talking about this uh, mayoral uh, forum, uh, we'll focus a bit on Los Angeles. Nana. So the top four countries are Nigeria, Ethiopia, Belize, and Jamaica. It was really significant for us to have, for example, the ambassador uh, to at large to the Garifuna Nation and the president of the Garifuna Nation. Los Angeles is home to the largest Belizean population outside of Belize. And in fact, there's maybe one city 
in Belize that has more Belizeans than we have right here in Los Angeles. And of course, most of the Belizeans that we have here in LA are black. And so, you know, we're talking about a significant population in the county of Los Angeles, 71% of black migrants live in the city of Los Angeles proper, which means really, if you're around black people, and you you count five, you probably would have at least one who is a foreign born black migrant or who has family member or who has, you know, is descendant such as myself, daughter of Ghanaian parents here. But that doesn't even include people like my son. Right. Who are like the third generation. So once you start including folks in that generation, now you the number even gets larger. And so I think it's it's really important for folks to to understand that. Black migrants cannot be invisibilized any longer, cannot be ignored any longer in terms of city politics. We have a Nigerian brother right now um, that's running in CV15. Uh, we had a Belizean brother that was running Iran last time um, in CV10, uh, I believe. So, you know, this is happening and it's likely that when we start talking about Black folks on city council, for example, in school boards, especially in these local spaces, that we're going to be talking about Black migrants. And we can't forget that the first foreign-born Black congressperson in the United States House of Representatives was Mervyn Dimley from Trinidad. And that was in 1989, right? He began in, in 1990 um, as a congressperson. So it, it, there's a long history there, but it's just more of us now. And therefore, it's just even more likely and more, you know, it makes more sense that we're going to be more and more involved in what's happening on the elected side um, of the city of Los Angeles. Right. And, and that reminds me, Shirley Chisholm, whose fa fa heritage, her family hailed from my home island of, of Barbados. And of course, the first black woman to run for president um, of, of the United States. So uh, back to this um, mayor race here. Um, I understand that Rick Caruso, the very extremely wealthy guy who's running uh, for mayor and used millions of his own money in his uh, campaign, that he wasn't invited. So tell us why. And also, no response, uh, surprisingly, to many who are listening to this show um, from uh, Kevin DeLeon who has a reputation as an immigrants' rights activist, Nana. So I'm going to do the reverse order. So well, let's start with Caruso. Um, with Caruso, he wasn't invited because he, it's clear from all, all his history, it's clear from things that he's said in the past that, first of all, he has no respect for Black people. Uh, you know, I, I've been here for the past 33 years, and I remember when uh, Rick Caruso uh, was uh, caught having a conversation about the police chief who was going to be the next police chief in which Congresswoman Waters came up. And I remember him calling her the B word and not apologizing. Wow. I remember that. What? You can't call <laughs> black women the B word. And I had, and then we, you know, it, if it doesn't start off as a caterpillar, it don't become a butterfly, uh, Margaret. And, so, and Congresswoman we, Waters, better known as auntie to so, so many, outrageous. Anyway, carry on. Nana. Outrageous. Um, and if you look at, and you look at his policy, his po the things he's talking about, the platform that he's talking about, um, increasing police, um, the way he wants to address the unhoused, 
all of that is going to be harmful to black migrants, is going to lead to our arrest, is going to lead to our detention. And when black migrants see police, we see deportations because when we have interactions with police, yes, it pulls us into the carceral system, but it also pulls us into the detention deportation system. 76% of black folks, even in the county of Los Angeles, are deported on criminal grounds and or, or which include just interaction with the police, you know, on certain levels. And so he He's going to lead to more detention and deportations of our people. He's going to he's not talking about investing resources in our communities. Really, as far as he's concerned, we don't really exist again, especially as black migrants. Um, when we look at Kevin DeLeon, he did not not respond. He literally declined every single opportunity. Uh, and so it's, it's not just uh, the fact that he you know, didn't, was like quiet. He wasn't quiet. You know, there's no way that you can have five different times given to you on four different days that aren't even happening in the same week. And you don't have the capacity to give us 30 minutes of your time. That's all we asked for was 30 minutes. It was not debate style. Uh, folks, the candidates came in. We asked pertinent questions from our community. We only asked for 30 minutes. And to me, it seems outrageous that someone who is touting themselves as the immigration candidate feels that they can just flat out reject talking with black uh, migrants after talking to so many black migrant, I'm sorry, brown migrant groups, speaking to Asian and Pacific Islander groups that included migrants, um, and then having nothing to say to black migrants as we reach out completely outrageous. Right. <laughs> you know, I'm sure that's shocking to a lot of uh, people who are listening right now. And, um, you know, hopefully he's going to be doing something or come out with, uh, you know, some kind of better explanation other than, well, I don't have the time to talk to you all. In other words, you're not important enough, um, a constituent for me to spend the time on. You said that it wasn't debate style though. So I was going to ask you if there was a clear winner <laughs> in the, in the forum last, uh, that happened, uh, just was last night, wasn't it? It was just last night. And let me tell uh -huh. you, I would say this, it was very interesting. I think, you know, we clearly we had uh, candidate Bass, candidate Viola. Clearly, the community knows candidate Bass better, you know, just because of her long time in terms of politics, in terms of community engagement. Um, and, you know, as a congresswoman. Right. So they know her better. And so you, you had a sense that, yes, they know her better. Um, and yet and even and even so um, with candidate Viola, I think um, the, the issue, the, we asked similar questions in the beginning and then we switched some in towards the end. But um, especially on the similar questions, you did get the, a little bit more of that, you know, black response, the hum, hum yeah, you know, the, the responses, the sounds um, mm -hmm. were not captured on the on the video. But you did get more of the sounds of response. And I think that that there was not a clear winner in the sense that there wasn't a situation in which anyone just ran away with it. Um, and I think that's important. I think that that means something. And I think that's significant. And I'm hoping that both um, campaigns are going to go back and, and watch the tape, right? And really see how people responded 
and understand, you know, in this situation, especially with black migrants, as you know, Margaret, there actually isn't this like hundred year or 50 year, I'm exaggerating, um, history with the Democratic Party or with particular candidates that makes it so you just go and get our vote because you have to earn the votes of black migrants. And we are shrewd when it comes to politics. We're shrewd. We, we still talk the politics of our country as well as the politics of here from four-year-olds, right, to 88-year-olds. And I think it was interesting for both candidates to see that black migrants are way more engaged on issues beyond language access, right, and how are you going to help us make some money? Yeah. Um, and they were surprised, um, pleasantly surprised, I'm sure, or, you know, for and, um, and we were glad to be able to have that conversation. Wow, we're going to, of course, be watching uh, this race for mayor, a really uh, important one uh, happening right now. So uh, thank Baji and you, Nana, for organizing uh, this forum and again, ensuring that Black immigrants um, and migrants uh, remain in the mix, even when it comes to the candidates running for mayor of Los Angeles. Thank you, Nana. Speak with you you again soon. Thank you. All righty. And again, you could, um, uh, you know, follow Baji, just do a search and you'll be able to find um, Black Alliance for Just Immigration. And uh, just to be um, transparent here, uh, Karen Bass is someone that I have known for a a very, very long time, um, including when she was merely, I'll put it in quotes, a community organizer in South Los Angeles doing important work and then going on to the um, to run and uh, actually in the California uh, legislature in Sacramento, and then in Congress, and also spent time as chair of the Congressional Black Caucus. So I just wanted to uh, you, you to mention that. And of course, um, we are not allowed uh, in Pacifica to do any um, candidates endorse endorsements, either for mayor, president, or anything else. What I'd like to do now is to go straight to our weekly Earth Watch, where there's actually some good news. There's a victory that our guests will tell us about. I'd like to welcome Matt Simmons, who is a staff attorney with the Environmental Protection Information Center, known as EPIC. At EPIC, he is focused on using his law degree to make life as difficult as possible for people who want to harm the environment, whether it's private companies, misguided state agencies, or the federal government, no matter who's in charge, I guess that means what party is in charge, and he's ready to use every legal tool at his disposal to defend the unique ecosystem of Northwestern uh, California. Matt, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, and we'd like to thank the Global Justice Ecology Project. We partner with them for our weekly Earth Watch and our weekly Earth Minute. So, Matt, uh, tell us about this um, CAL FIRE withdrawing three of its logging plans um, in Jackson Demonstration State Forest. First of all, tell us where that is and why is that significant? Why is that seen as a victory of sorts, Matt? Yeah, uh, so Jackson Demonstration State Forest is a uh, roughly 50,000 acre forest located in Mendocino County uh, between the towns of Fort Bragg and Willits. Uh, It's owned by the state. So this is your forest. It's everyone in California's forest. 
and currently it's managed by Cal Fire as a industrial timberland. Uh, so I know most people hear Cal Fire and they think of firefighters, uh, but Cal Fire actually has a timber wing of the agency that does a lot of logging. Uh, and so uh, Epic has been involved in a campaign for about a year and a half uh, to try to change the management of Jackson uh, to be less focused on industrial forestry and more focused on conservation, uh, environmental justice for the Native American tribes who are you know, indigenous to the region, uh, climate change, just focus on all the other values that we really should be using our state lands for. Right. And so, you know, tell us also about the, the coalition. A coalition uh, came together, the Save Jackson uh, Coalition, that uh, played a big role in all this. Yeah. So this is something I'm actually really proud of is, you know, I think a lot of the times in environmental movements, all the different people, all the different uh, stakeholders can be really separated from each other. You know, you'll have very different interests talking about different environmental things. But this is a case where you have a lot of really diverse interests all working together. Um, so you have environmental nonprofits like Epic, you have uh, neighboring, uh, you know, neighbors to the forest who are directly impacted because they live right there. And then you also have the Native American tribes who, you know, are the true uh, original people of the land who've been managing it since time immemorial. Uh, and in this case, we've, we've been able to all work together towards the common goal of stopping the destructive logging and, you know, transforming the forest into something more um, conservation oriented and, and focused on all these other values. Right, right. And um, so people can, you know, well, before I ask this about how people can get in touch with Save Jackson Coalition, is the work done now, given what has been released at these three controversial places located in Jackson Demonstration State Forest have been withdrawn, right? So is your work finished here or do your demands go further than that? No, we're, we're, we're just getting started. So they, they usually sell about six or seven plans per year in the forest. And there's a whole bunch that were already sold more than a year and a half ago that we're still fighting. And then there's potential future ones that they're writing now and that we're going to have to fight as they come up. These are just three that, you know, we're sort of, they're the ones that we all commented on right when the campaign started. It is a huge victory and a, and a huge relief for folks. One of the plans was directly adjacent to a really popular state park that a lot of people like to camp at. And, you know, people would have been hearing chainsaws and loud logging happening while they were camping in the woods. And, you know, no one wants that. So I think a lot of people are, are really relieved that these plans have been withdrawn. But our hope is to change sort of the underlying management plan for the forest so that, you know, going forward, these sorts of plans don't get proposed again in the future. Yeah. And I mean, I imagine too, I mean, it's, it's great. You're, you're absolutely right. Nobody wants to go camping and be having, hearing this noise and the dust, et cetera, coming from loggers. But what about the, the ecosystem? And the, the importance of it in, in this particular area, I mean, basically just saving the trees and the impact on the ecosystem. Can you say a bit more about that? Matt? Yeah. So there, there's all sorts of reasons why this logging is, is bad for the ecosystem. So this is a coast redwood forest, which, you know, California is sort of famous for its redwoods. They're the largest trees in the world. They store and sequester a ton of carbon. 
They're also home to a lot of unique species, the northern spotted owl probably most famously. Logging also has really bad impacts on water quality. And this is a forest that's home to some of the last coho salmon in California, which is, you know, both an important fish in the ecosystem, but then it's also really important for the Native American tribes that live up here. And so the idea that we're going to, you know, help contribute to the extinction of this species by logging just doesn't really make any sense to me. And especially, you know, it's one thing on private timberlands to be doing this, but it's a whole other thing for the state of California to be doing this on its own land, right? You know, I think we we expect more from our state government. Right. And and finally, too, how important was the, I understand, the a band of the Pomo Indian, Coyote Valley Band from the Pomo Nation were involved in, in this fight. How important was that? And why were they involved? I think that was what made this fight possible. I, I think it was so incredibly important. So the, the Coyote Valley Band of Pomo Indians, you know, they're one of the local tribes that, you know, historically lived in the forest. You know, there's still trails that cut through the forest that go back to, you know, pre-colonization. There's areas of the forest that have these large tan oak trees that produce a ton of acorns. And people can look at them and tell, oh, these trees are here because of the prescribed burns and the tending that, you know, Pomo have been doing in the forest since time immemorial. You know, it wasn't that long ago that, you know, these areas weren't colonized and, and were, were, you know, undisturbed. And so I think it's essential for environmental organizations like Epic to always partner with the local tribes in order to make sure that our advocacy is, you know, both respectful and then also, you know, that we're working together towards these, these common goals. It makes us more successful and it just makes it a better thing when we do succeed, right? Because we get a better outcome. Right. Well, we are going to have to to leave it there. But but very quickly for Epic's work, are you focused only in Northern California, or does your work go beyond Northern California for for the organization? Yeah, we're we're mostly uh, focused on Northwestern California. There are you know state agencies that have a statewide reach that we we deal with and comment on their issues. But we are a grassroots organization that's pretty small and, and located in Northern California. Right. Well, we so much appreciate your work and congratulations to you and to the Pomo Nation and others that were involved in this fight. And I'm sure, as they say, the struggle continues. Thank you so much for joining us, Matt Simmons. Thank Thank you you for having me. We're going to take a very short station break now, and then we're going to be spending the rest of the hour with Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz will be discussing, you know, the obsession in the United States with guns, racialized policing, the roots and the wars against indigenous nations, slave patrols, the power of the NRA, and much more. This following uh, two very recent mass shootings have taken place. You're not going to want to miss that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Oh, 
Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. If you're a member of Facebook, you can like and friend us there. Our handle on Instagram and Twitter at So True Radio. You can also check out our website at So True Radio.org, see our community calendar and a lot of other stories. We're also nationwide and worldwide on SoundCloud. And uh, in, uh, in the U.S., we're going to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners across the state of New York. And internationally, we're going to give a shout out to our SoundCloud listeners. This time, let's pick Sydney and Australia, Sydney, Australia. This is Margaret Prescott, host of Sojourner Truth. Now, the U.S. experienced two mass shootings that were weeks apart, one in Buffalo, New York, where a white supremacist killed 10 African-Americans and Uvalde, Texas, where an 18-year-old used an assault rifle to kill 19 uh, elementary school children and two teachers. Exactly three days after the Texas shooting, the NRA held its annual convention just a short distance away. And the only event, by the way, that was canceled from their plans was the Grand Old Night of Freedom concert after all of the artists pulled out, out of respect for the victims, the children who were slaughtered in Uvalde. In the aftermath of the school massacres, the NRA pushed to expand guns into another new market, the classroom, a move that could turn the nation's more than 3 million teachers into gun buyers. And guess who a keynote speaker was at the NRA convention? None other than Donald Trump. And um, the NRA was presented with a check for $21 million from an online gun sales company that offered buyers to round up any gun purchase as a donation to the NRA. Okay, so a lot of power the NRA has and, uh, you know, Congress, despite so many mass shootings, have not acted. But what we want to be discussing with our guests today is not only the power of the NRA and the uh, obsession with guns, but also the Second Amendment right to bear arms that they tout out, um, the the pro-gun rights uh, advocates, um, the wars against indigenous people and the slave patrols and and all, all of that kind of rolling into where we are now, as well as the Reserve Officers Training Corps, known as the ROTC, um, which is a college to military program that trains students to become commissioned officers while also earning their academic uh, degrees. And by the way, there was an ROTC um, on the Uvalde um, uh, um, school district, the Evalde campus. I would like to welcome our guest. She's been on before, but it's been way too long. We'd love to have her on, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz. And she is an historian, author, memorist, and speaker who researches Western hemisphere history and international human rights. She grew up in rural Oklahoma, the daughter of a tenant farming family, and she's been active in the international indigenous movement for more than four decades. And she is known for her lifelong commitment to national and international social justice issues. Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, welcome. Thank you, Margaret. It's good to be back with you. 
Yeah. So there's so much to unpack here. I mean, let us just start. If we could go a little bit further back, you have written about settler colonialism and the Second Amendment. And I'll have to tell you, I learned so much reading it because Dr. Horn, who's a regular on our show, we have discussed the American Revolution, the 1776 Revolution, and his thesis that, in fact, slavery was a key issue in that, in terms of protecting slavery. Tell us your thoughts about that war, the Declaration of Independence, and the so-named Indian Wars. Yeah, well, Dr. Horn is just our really best living historian in my mind, and I learned so much from him as well. I, of course, do settler colonial studies, so my core interest is the settler colonialism and the white replacement of Native American nations across the continent. After the founding of the United States, continuation of wars of conquest, they had only managed to conquer uh, the 13 colonies. That took 150 years. Native people did not give up their farms, their villages, their fishing areas, lobster beds for just handed over. So this created a fundamentally militaristic United States of what has been called a fiscal military state. That is a state founded um, racial capitalism, militarism. So that's written into the Constitution, but a previous Northwest Ordinance is really more important than the Constitution because it's the fundamental mapping of what the Constitution itself would, you know, build the structure of law around it. And very few people, it's very rarely taught in history courses, even though you can go on the internet, read the whole thing word for word. It's always been available. It's not a secret. And there are maps. And what it does is map the way the conquest across the continent, the plan to get to the first, the first part is to get to the Mississippi River, because that area was colonized, you know, beyond the Mississippi, colonized by the Spanish. But it went on that it was going to kick out the Spanish and get to the Pacific and then get control the Pacific and China. So this is an ancient history. This is today. They're still working at that to control China, to control Asia and the whole Pacific. So this is a a founding of an imperialist state. And the ethnic cleansing of Native people is the real basis to the gun culture, because this was done with guns. So this started in 1607 with the first founding colony. I think the important factor of, and usually misunderstanding of Native American cultures, 99% of Native people in the Western Hemisphere, even in in the Amazon, in 1492 were agricultural. It was the most important three areas of the Western Hemisphere were among the seven founding sites of agrarian civilization. So agrarian civilization without capitalism, 
and collective sharing, many different cultures, but a fundamental sort of basis, they produce the most of the vegetables that are eaten around the world today. So they, the settlers didn't come in, you know, to a jungle or a dense forest. Everything was developed on the continent and had been for 10,000 years. So what they did was appropriate, appropriate already developed land and territory. So it was very quickly they could make themselves wealthy, but they had to make money to pay the royal crown for their right to be there and to be settlers. So plantation agriculture developed immediately in Virginia, of course, and then, you know, bringing 1619, the first enslaved people. And then by 1660, 1670s, the slave codes had been fully developed and the slave patrols have been fully developed. So that's, yeah. that's the, the, the sort of nutshell, you know, of the founding. It's really a dual settler colonialism with slavery and genocide. Absolutely. And, you know, your work is so important at this time that you now have history books, you know, being, you know, changing the history and, and uh, certain things not being mentioned and also the banning of books. And you talked about the vision. I mean, you write about Thomas Jefferson and, you know, his dream of continental expansion, as you said, all the way to the Pacific. So a, a kind of vision, as you say, of manifest destiny that later, a few years later, became the Monroe Doctrine. And absolutely right. We're still right in the midst of, of that battle right now. So the interesting thing also that I that I learned was about the role of, of Barbados and these slave patrols, because apparently you make the case that nearly all law related to slavery was forged in the colonies, came out of the colonies from existing practices, including the English Caribbean plantation colonies. And of course, I'm from Barbados and really interested in this because mm -hmm. I have known that mm -hmm. a lot of the, the slave masters, as we would call them, from Barbados came to the United States along the, the coast, but also the fact that they brought the slave codes that were developed in Barbados. Tell us, tell us a little bit about that and the relationship then with that and the slave patrols. Yes, yeah, so well, Barbados, as I'm sure you know, was the most brutal part of major brutality because it's so absolute, but it definitely yeah. was beyond the bounds of any other site I've ever found of enslavement in the Americas. It was uh, a very few white people, mostly absentee landlords living in castles in England and with managers and utter brutality. I think the average age of a, a slave was about 28 years old to live that long, you know, with being starved, beaten, food used as a as a way of forcing more work, harder work. So these are the slave owners then that decided to build a colony. South Carolina was already legally a colony, but it was very hard to get settlers there. It was very densely populated with the Tuscarora 
native people, farming people. So they came and they had already developed slave codes and slave patrols. So they not only brought their slaves, they brought with them slave patrols, the patrollers. So they were, you know, basically British citizens. And they weren't, you know, the kind of thing you see in Gone with the Wind, you know, sort of the the caricature of a poor white gnarling person. They were just regular citizens, you know, who also owned slaves. But everyone, all white people had to participate in slave patrols to control Native people. So guns and slavery were intimately associated with each other. All slave raiding relied on guns and all slaveholding relied on armed repression. So this was what they set up. And it was so successful, in quotation marks, (laughs) that it was copied then in Virginia. And then, of course, in the North Carolina, colony was set up. They just imported it, you know, as such. So this was the illegal, this was colonial law that really was simply adopted in U.S. law with the revolution. Didn't miss a beat, you know, and that's why it's not discussed. You know, historians will say, well, that's not spelled out in the you know, the founding fathers when they're building, they didn't have to. That was just the way it was, that already existed. They didn't have to create anything new. But that's where the Second Amendment comes in. That's so important. I Unfortunately, our liberal sisters and brothers, and many leftists too, are kind of stuck on this idea that the Second Amendment is about the National Guard, about state militias that were established. But those were established in Article 8 of the Constitution, the whole spelled out what the, they called them state militias at the time. The army, of course, the federal army was, was, was also spelled out. But the state militias could be called on just like the National Guard today. And later they came to be called National Guard. So it makes no logical sense in a Bill of Rights for individual rights that the militias that are mentioned would have anything whatsoever to do with state militias or National Guard. They were empowering settlers to do what they were already doing, which was establishing slave patrols and militias to kill Native people and take their land, which is what they were initially about. But this was then codified, basically, as an individual right. So this, uh, there's very little sense of, of this history, the real history of it, that this was normal because there's so much romanticizing of the Constitution that this ugly little thing, you know, the Second Amendment, that's there, they want to somehow say it's out of date. But it's not really out of date because there's still white supremacy, white nationalism, and the control of Black people, and of course, Indians reservation. So the colonial system still exists in the practice of modern police is directly related to slave patrols. It's, it's really interesting. I don't know if you've noticed this, but to me, because I, you know, I know about the slave patrols, when a policeman shoots, I think he won in Sacramento, where a guy was out with uh, binoculars looking at the sky. 
a young black man. And a neighbor called, a white neighbor, and said, there's a black man in the yard. It wasn't in her yard. It was next door. And the police came, and they shot him. And then the policeman said, he says, I don't know why I did that. You know, I don't know why I did it. And, you know, shooting black people in the back while they're running, it's like a DNA, you know, in the police because that's their roots. And when things, you know, psychologists know, Troy knew, if you don't bring these things to uh, consciousness, they're deeply in the subconscious. And, you know, that can be very, very destructive, of course. So I think that police training, I really traced it of the Southern, of course, in the South, in what became the Confederacy. And the Deep South is where the slave patrols and policing were hardly any light between those two things. But after the Civil War, they developed their, basically the Ku Klux Klan were the slave patrollers that continued during Reconstruction. And when they were able to tap down and control and reestablish the order of controlling Black people and back to the cotton fields and disenfranchisement and so forth, they started setting up sheriff's department. But this, these sheriffs were simply renamed and they had been the Ku Klux Klan. The Ku Klux Klan, I don't ever see this in histories of the Ku Klux Klan, that they were simply slave patrollers that had to put hoods on because they were illegal after the Civil War and could be arrested. I think it's a great tragedy of history that the United States, Lincoln was already expanding United States power at war with the Navajos, at war with the Cheyenne people during the Civil War, which is never written about that history, was sending more and more of the army. So at the end of the Civil War, sent five of the six divisions of the U.S. Army to west of the Mississippi for conquest of Native people. And those wars raged on for 30 years. Well, you know, Dr. Roxanne Dunbar-Ortiz, I'm looking at the clock and I'm so sad because, you know, we're out of time, but I've been wanting to have you on and do an in-depth with you. And I know you were working on your latest book. Your book is Not a Nation of Immigrants, Settler Colonialism, White Supremacy, and a History of Erasure and Exclusion, and would really love when you could find the time uh, to come back with us and we'll get a lot deeper into all of this. I mean, you're like a mini encyclopedia with the, <laughs> this, this information, with the work really important work that you've done. So we are going to have to leave it there, but thank you so very much for joining us and please let us know <laughs> that we could grab your attention again and, yes, and uh, have a full hour discussion with you. And people might want to get hold of my book, Loaded, Disarming History of the Second Amendment, in which right. all of these things are explained. Uh, it's okay. a very cheap little book. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. We'll speak again. But we, we got a dash. Thank um, you, Margaret. We, 
All righty, we're out of time. Today's show produced by me, that's uh, Margaret Prescott. I'd like to thank our assistant producer, Alicia Vargas, our board op uh, for today, uh, Gary Baca. We got a dash, but stay tuned for Democracy Now! with Amy Goodman. Sojourner Truth will be back on the air tomorrow. Thank you for listening. This is your host, Margaret Prescott. 